This episode is brought to you by Estellas Oncology. Estellas Oncology is changing the course of cancer treatment. With a world-class team of medical, clinical, and scientific experts, Estellas Oncology is driving innovation and collaboration to redefine what's possible for those impacted by hard-to-treat cancers. Learn more at estellasoncology.com. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Prostate cancer is the most common solid organ malignancy in males. It's estimated that one in eight men will develop prostate cancer during their lifetime. Fortunately, when diagnosed early, it has an excellent survival rate. Prostate cancer has a variety of very effective treatment options. What are the advantages and disadvantages of each? Why would one treatment option be chosen over another? And how do the adverse effects of the various treatments differ? I'll be discussing these questions with our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Carnes, a urologist at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Welcome, Jeff, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Daryl. I'm really happy to have this opportunity to talk about uh, prostate cancer. Well, before we talk about treatment, let's talk a little bit about not treatment. In 2012, U.S. Preventive Services Task Force changed their recommendation regarding the use of PSA for prostate cancer screening. And I think this really resulted in a change that um, determined how you manage patients with a new diagnosis of prostate cancer. Can you review that uh, recommendation they made and what's the current approach you use in patients after they've got a new diagnosis of prostate cancer and deciding if they need treatment right at that time? The task force, you know, made their decision. I, I think it was a little ill-advised how they came about with their conclusion. There is some, you know, statistical methodology that they used that was not accurate. They tried to compare two studies on prostate screening, one in Europe, one in the U.S., that were really not comparable. However, I think it did allow us as specialists in prostate cancer to reevaluate how we would screen or, or provide an early diagnosis of prostate cancer. I think it had some pluses to it because it refocused our clinical acumen to, to better diagnose those men who need to be diagnosed and to perhaps not diagnose those men who don't need to be diagnosed, meaning that there's really no benefit of screening a man who has a limited life expectancy. Certainly after that, that task force decision to become a grade D, you know, what we did see sh- shortly thereafter is a decreased incidence, a decreased diagnosis of prostate cancer. We also saw an uptick in the diagnosis of more advanced disease and perhaps even some increased mortality rates. We also saw something very similar during the whole COVID pandemic where men were less likely to be screened for prostate cancer. Prostate cancer screening probably has had an impact on mortality. You know, and and the best estimates of attribution, maybe about a 50% effect on mortality as it relates to introduction of prostate screening. Certainly, it's not without its risk, like any screening, whether it's it's lung or colorectal or, or breast cancer. I think we do a better job of stratifying men who need to be diagnosed and providing the appropriate treatment to the right patient at the right time and hopefully even the right treatments. Yeah. 
And you're certainly being more selective about who needs treatment. And uh, I have a fair number of patients who are being watched carefully and uh, treatment has been initiated when uh, you feel it's appropriate. The grade D part of that recommendation was that there was no conclusive evidence that the benefits outweighed the potential harms uh, related to men getting diagnosed. But what we do now, we have a, you know, the preferred treatment for a low risk prostate cancer is not active treatment such as surgery or radiation, but it's active monitoring or what we prefer to call active surveillance. It's not watchful waiting. We do monitor them with MRIs, with potential genomic markers, uh, with serial blood tests. And most men can stay on active surveillance for long-term. And if they need to go off active surveillance, they're usually, hate to use the term rescued, but appropriately treated with either radiation or surgery if they do show signs of progression. Okay. Well, let's start by talking about probably the most common form of treatment, and that's a surgical prostatectomy. When might you recommend to a patient they have this procedure performed for treatment? Well, certainly men who have a, at least a 10-year life expectancy, and there's no contraindications to surgical intervention. We have randomized trials of actually active monitoring versus surgery and radiation to show that the survival can be equivalent even for higher grade, higher risk disease, whether the man undergoes surgery or radiation. Certainly there are some situations where men cannot get radiation therapy uh, related to uh, perhaps a prior history of radiation, some confounding factor, perhaps a diagnosis of scleroderma. And, you know, certainly the younger man, even the man in his 40s, that maybe has a, a certain risk factor to get diagnosed with prostate cancer, gets a diagnosis of prostate cancer, has a perhaps 40-year life expectancy ahead of him. Certainly, I think then surgery is favored over radiation. Radiation, although not high, can be associated with secondary malignancies. And I think that's one of the, the, the factors when you look at a younger man. But certainly when you start getting to men in their late 60s, 70s, it's really a personal choice of how that man wants to be treated, whether it's by surgery or radiation. And there may be some men who want to avoid uh, hormonal therapy. And when we have a higher grade prostate cancer and a decision is made for radiation, usually that is done in conjunction with concomitant hormonal therapy. The, f the uh, duration of the hormonal therapy depends on the risk category of the man. Okay. Well, maybe one or two decades ago, the uh, robotic surgical prostatectomy kind of replaced the open retropubic prostatectomy. Are there differences in, or there, are there advantages in the robotic technique? You know, that's been an often debated topic. We're not going to put the genie back in the bottle, meaning that, you know, it was about 20 years ago when we did our first robotic prostatectomy here in Mayo Clinic Rochester. Uh, now it's the preferred surgical approach of all of our prostatectomies done. 90 to 95% are done robotic here. And actually, even within robotics, there are certain different approaches that can be done in terms of removing the prostate. There can be pros and cons to each of those sort of surgical approaches, whether it's, you know, behind the bladder, in front of the bladder, sparing certain tissues. It's really up to that patient characteristic of what approach uh, they have. Ultimately, it is still a surgical removal of an organ. If the surgeon is a high volume surgeon, probably the outcome is not different in terms of cancer control 
potency and continence maintenance, however it's done. I do think in a patient who has a predisposition to some bleeding that the robotic approach is preferred. I think the man with a bigger abdomen, it can have a preference of robotics over open uh, just because of the nature of the incision. It certainly has resulted in a shorter hospital stay than the older procedure. Absolutely. But part of that was just changes in perioperative management, because even the patients that are still undergoing open prostatectomy today, because of certain factors related to maybe surgical history and not a good candidate for robotic, their hospital stay is still only one night. Hmm. That being said, we are starting to do even uh, outpatient prostatectomies, which is new regarding enhanced recovery protocols where the patient has it done maybe in the morning and then that afternoon can be discharged to a, a local non-hospital setting uh, mm-hmm. where they can still have some nurse monitoring. And that has worked out quite well. Do you see the day where the patient and the surgeon can be in two separate locations and you perform uh, your procedure robotically online? Even transatlantic virtual interaction has happened where there can be a surgeon giving advice, but still, I think even most patients would want their surgeon in the room. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there has to be a, a surgeon in the room or at least a provider to set up the laparoscopic approach because, the, you know, essentially that's what it is. Yeah. It's rare, but occasionally there needs to be a conversion. So you definitely need a a team equipped to deal with potential issues that may arise during surgery, where the skill set locally, where perhaps the the surgeon is directing the operation, the more experienced surgeon. But as I mentioned, I think most patients would want that surgeon in Mm -hmm. the operating room. Sure. Well, you mentioned a bit about external beam radiation. Uh, Expand upon that. So who might be a patient who'd be a better candidate for this than the surgical approach? That is a a source of debate almost yearly in our national and international meetings. Not only has our diagnostic methods improved over time, and perhaps our surgical approaches improved over time, but also radiation therapy approaches have improved over time, where now there's a lot of what we call hypofractionated courses, where shorter period of time, higher dose per fraction of radiation can be provided. We also offer proton beam radiation here versus conventional uh, radiation, even for the higher risk patient that perhaps cannot get enough external radiation. And we know they benefit from uh, more of a radiation dose. They could even have combined external beam with high dose brachytherapy or implantation of uh, radiation in a same day setting. What are the advantages of the proton beam radiation? To date, there's never been a convincing study to suggest proton beam is superior to traditional photon uh, radiation. Certainly, there are disease states, pediatric, central nervous system uh, tumors where proton beam can be favored. Uh, But in prostate cancer, you know, you can deliver higher dose to a more precise area even for patients who are considered what may be investigational of a limited spread to a bone, that perhaps that patient could have higher dose delivered via a stereotactic proton beam uh, over photon. Okay. How do the uh, survival rates for those treated with radiation compare with those of surgery? 
So they're essentially equivalent, you know, almost disease stage for disease stage at, at 10 and now recently 15 years of randomized trial data related to, you know, overall or prostate cancer mortality uh, rates. Uh, you know, certainly each approach has its own set of potential side effects that happen. The differences with surgery versus radiation long-term is, you know, with surgery, the side effects tend to be more immediate, get better with time, such as return of continence, return of potency. With radiation, they cannot be so evident at first, but then become worse over time. Certainly when it comes to rectal toxicity, radiation uh, has a, a more of an impact on that over a longer time. Again, there's a lot of nuances, you know, with radiation in terms of concomitant hormonal therapy, which will have an impact on, on sexual dysfunction, at, at least during that period of time where the hormonal therapy is being administered. Okay. Well, my practice is mostly middle-aged and older men. So I have a fair number of my patients who have had prostate cancer. I haven't had many who have been treated with radioactive seed placement. When is that recommended? It used to be a, a preferred treatment, sort of for that low risk prostate cancer, Daryl, you know, that, that Gleason 6, mm-hmm. and maybe even now for, you know, Gleason 3 plus 4. You know, once we sort of stopped and said, you know, we don't need to be actively treating the vast majority of Gleason 6 low risk prostate cancers, the rates of brachytherapy, uh, at least low dose brachytherapy, which are the implantation of multiple radioactive seeds sort of, you know, fell out of favor. It's still being done. They typically have higher risk features such as, you know, Gleason 3 plus 4, which is a favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer, uh, maybe in cases of 4 plus 3. And we start getting higher grade cancers. You Usually the uh, permanent placement of seeds is not done, but what is done is external beam with a a boost that is not permanent implantation, but temporary implantation of uh, radioactive rods uh, within the prostate. It has to do with higher doses being delivered through an external beam approach, which typically was not done. And that's one of the favors of LDR or low dose uh, brachy. Yeah. You mentioned a bit about the differences in adverse effects from radiation versus surgery. When you're looking at erectile dysfunction and stress urinary incontinence, and you go out maybe five, maybe 10 years, how do the two treatments compare? They could be fairly equivalent. Again, it depends on the man's age. We know as, as men age, their erectile qualities can start becoming worse and may need treatment. But certainly both treatments have an impact on erectile function. But, you know, essentially about two years after treatments, they can be fairly similar when it comes to erectile function and urinary function. The quality of incontinence is a little bit different, meaning that with surgery, it tends to be a stress-related incontinence, especially, you know, right immediately post-operatively and gets better with time. Mm-hmm. With radiation, not as evident. And then if patient does become incontinent, a lot of times it's more of an urge incontinence mm-hmm. related to the effects on the bladder, which, okay. is, which obviously has, has improved over time with more precise radiation. All right. And then finally, let's talk about uh, hormonal therapy or maybe you want to combine that with chemotherapy since I suspect they're often given together. But when is, uh, when is that a recommended treatment? Yeah. So, Daryl, that's really changed. Uh, even from when I was in training in the, in the late 90s, you know, the thought was prostate cancer was a chemo-resistant 
And then we had a couple really nice studies to show that patients who do have what we call hormonal resistant or more properly termed castration resistant prostate cancer, the addition of chemotherapy can provide a definite survival benefit by the addition of uh, chemotherapy. And that was in the, the late stage of prostate cancer. And now we also have uh, some early stage metastatic disease that is still what we term castration sensitive or hormone sensitive, where uh, the addition of chemotherapy can actually improve survival. These tend to be patients who are symptomatic or who have visceral metastasis or have what we call high volume metastatic disease, which is typically over four bone metastasis uh, and at least you know one outside of the, the axial skeleton, where they may benefit from the addition of chemotherapy to hormonal therapy at the initial treatment. And we have even evolved into potentially triplet therapy for some higher volume metastatic disease, meaning first diagnosis, de novo diagnosis, where now they get standard hormonal therapy, which is typically a LHRH agonist like luprolide or an antagonist like Degarolex that shuts down, causes castrate levels of testosterone with the addition of a oral agent, which is, affects usually the antigen receptor or some sort of antigen pathway and a third line, which is the chemotherapy. So triplet therapy in the last year based on two studies have become almost standard for de novo high volume metastatic disease. Mm -hmm. Well, I know patients with localized disease treated with either surgery or radiation have, I mean, outstanding survival rates. These patients tend to die of something other than their prostate cancer. How about those with metastatic disease? Is it still a very treatable disease? It's treatable. Certainly those agents, all those systemic agents, and there has been a boom of, of systemic agents in the last 10 years. You know, we used to have just standard luprolide therapy, and now we have, you know, two handfuls of different therapies that we can use during the course of metastatic disease. You know, one of the benefits of surgery and radiation, not only do they have a clear-cut survival advantage over not doing anything, for the, the higher grade cancers, but they also prevent metastasis. And we know that metastatic prostate cancer is usually not curable. Th that being said, the outcomes now for metastatic prostate cancer are not in months, but their survival should be expected to be over even five years. Mm -hmm. It's an evolving topic because we struggle with the proper sequencing of all these systemic agents. And I don't know if anybody can give you an accurate estimate of the survival right now for a man with new diagnosis of metastatic prostate cancer, because we are in an era where there's so many systemic agents that it, you know, we just keep prolonging the survival and hopefully the quality of life of these men. Yeah, that's very important. Well, are there any other forms of management uh, for prostate cancer that I've missed? There are, there has been a move to focal therapies with prostate cancer. You know, as I, I alluded to earlier regarding the better diagnosis of prostate cancer, we use multiparametric MRIs a lot, even prior to the diagnosis of prostate cancer to more appropriately determine or triage men who we think need a biopsy to begin with. And then that, that MRI becomes a platform to look at the rest of the prostate. And then there are some instances where men could be treated with just focal therapy to the prostate. Now you may say, well, what focal therapy do we use? Well, there's not a preferred one, but certainly it can be 
freezing or, or cryotherapy. It can be um, some form of radiation. It could even be some form of electricity, you know, like radio frequency ablation and even newer technologies that allow for electrovaporization of cells. It is an active area of investigation and it's, it is not standard of care. And I, I do think if men would desire that type of therapy, uh, they should be enrolled in a clinical trial. And we certainly have those open here in Mayo Clinic Rochester. Do you see anything in the future that uh, excites you about the uh, management of prostate cancer? I do. I think MRIs will improve over time our ability to detect even small foci of prostate cancer. But again, we don't necessarily need to increase detection, but increase detection of tumors that may have a more of a metastatic potential. And certainly with the combination of radiology, i.e. MRI, and also the newer, what we refer to as the functional type of uh, nuclear imaging like PET scanning. Now there is a specific PSMA PET scan for prostate cancer, both in the initial staging uh, as well as uh, following patients who may recur after treatment. So those forms of radiology, we have genomic testing now on tumor or somatic tumor testing. And even we have germline testing men uh, with prostate cancer. Well, Jeff, you've given us a very thorough description of the management of prostate cancer. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three key points? I think that screening saves lives. I don't think it should be done, quote, willy-nilly and should be shared decision-making among the patients and the, uh, the providers that perform screening. And then there are methods for us to better stratify a man who either needs to be biopsied and once biopsied, who needs treatment. And it certainly is a better position in 2023 than it was in, in 2003 you know, when I sort of finished up training. And that I think we do a better job providing the appropriate uh, diagnosis, the appropriate treatment, and appropriate quality of life uh, for these men uh, to live a, a long life. We've been discussing the treatment of prostate cancer with Dr. Jeffrey Carnes, a Mayo Clinic urologist from Rochester, Minnesota. Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. It was a great discussion. Thank you, Daryl. I really appreciate this opportunity and happy to have any further questions directed our way. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.